Well, good morning, family. Good to see you. Good to be here this morning. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and open to the book of Daniel. We're at week three in a an outstanding uh, opportunity here to look in this marvelous book. A decade or so, many of us learned a new term. It was too big to fail. It described banks and companies that were so big that theoretically they couldn't be allowed to fail. They Supposedly because their failure would bring devastation to the overall economy of our nation. You know, I think one of the great problems of success and achievement is the tendency to then become overly impressed with our own importance. The problem isn't just with banks or with companies, but with kings and politicians and athletes and, well, quite frankly, with all of us, any one of us, even pastors, church leaders. Matter of fact, in my opinion, one of the great challenges of modern Christianity is the success of so many of our leaders. See, as American and 21st century Christianity, we create a lot of celebrity pastors, celebrity teachers, celebrity authors, celebrity musicians in Christendom, and then we watch a large percentage of them fall into various scandals. They go out, they crash, and they burn. Success can be a dangerous thing. So how do we protect ourselves from the dangers, the inherent dangers of success? Should somehow you or I manage to stumble into some measure of success, despite everything we do to the contrary, (laughs) one of these days you or I might stumble into some degree of success and how do we protect ourselves from the inherent dangers of that. Here in the book of Daniel, we we noticed a couple of weeks ago in chapter 1, we saw Daniel and his three buddies, his three amigos, young teenagers taken captive from Judah, taken to the foreign land of Babylon. There they firmly resolved not to compromise their faith in God, not to compromise their love for God, and they stuck with it. We noticed that there were three big themes that are interwoven into this book of Daniel. The first is that God is sovereign. Man does not control history. God does. Secondly, we noticed the second big theme that runs all the way through this book is that God is with His people. Uh, He is with those who trust in Him. He's working His purposes out for our good. And thirdly, we see that it is filled with lessons about how we are to live godly lives even in a pagan world. Last week, in the first half of chapter 2, the executioners came for Daniel and his three friends because King Nebuchadnezzar had had recurring dreams 
And this, this dream troubled him. It frightened him. He wanted to know what the dreams meant. And so he called the wise men of Babylon and they, they could not tell him his dream. He knew it, but he wanted them to tell him the dream so that he could know that they could then tell him what it meant. He wanted to know what this dream meant. They couldn't tell him and so he ordered the execution. The executioners came for Daniel and his friends and Daniel responded, it says, with discretion, with tact. And he asked what was making this king's order so urgent. And, and it's, they hadn't been consulted. They didn't know what was going on. He was able to go to the king and get a little time where he and his buddies, they, they spent time in prayer and waiting on God. And then God gave Daniel the answer to their prayers. He gave Daniel the king's dream and what it meant. That's where we pick up our story today. And as we look at this today, what we're going to see is three lessons this morning on three principles for how we can handle success. Verse 24, let's pick up the story. Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he, he said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought Daniel before the king in haste, and thus said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known the, to the king the interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that he has, the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And He has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I may have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel Young, probably late teens, at this moment in time is at the center stage in the world empire of Babylon before the most powerful man in the world. Coming before him with the answer that all of the wise men, all the cabinet, all of the learned scholars, all of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, everybody else, every, nobody else could give the king what he wanted to know. This young man with his friends has gone to prayer and God has revealed to him what is the, in everybody in the know in that day is the biggest concern on their minds. Because the king is so anxious to know this, he is ready to kill anybody who won't meet his demands. Daniel is in a place right now of tremendous, from our viewpoint, tremendous success. God has given him a mystery. How do you handle success? What does Daniel do? 
The most surprising thing right here as you really look at Daniel is to see the humility that he is exhibiting here. He's exuding it. A godly person, if they're going to handle success successfully, is someone who will live humbly. Notice that Daniel nowhere here exalts himself. Quite in contrast, and I think there's deliberately a contrast here with Arioch. Arioch, the, the head of the king's executioners. Last week we called him Butch. I won't go into why we called him that. You'll have to go back and listen to the message if you weren't here. But Butch comes and, and, and with Daniel goes to Butch and he says, Hey, take me to the king. We've got the interpretation. Arioch goes in like this. O king, I have found among the the exiles from Judah, I have found the one who can give the king's interpret the interpretation. He's honking his own horn, all the way coming in here. Daniel comes in very humbly. It's a big contrast, and should be between the people of the world and the people of God. People of the world exalt themselves. They look to promote themselves. That is the way it's done. All the books say so. Look out for number one because nobody else will. The child of God knows, no, I don't exalt number one and I don't look out for number one because God is looking out for me. Daniel does not exalt himself. Peter says, instead... You and I, he says, we are to clothe ourselves. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Daniel humbles himself. He affirms as he comes before the king, he affirms the statements the the other wise men had made just roughly 24 hours before. When they came before the king and they said, King, what you're asking is impossible. There is no wise man. There is no enchanter. There is no diviner. There is no astrologer. There is no one who can, who can give you what you want. No one can read in someone else's mind. And Daniel comes in and he affirms that. King, there is no one who can give you what you want. By the way, a very dangerous statement to make because the day before when the other guys said that, the king just ordered off with their heads. You can almost feel the tension in the room when the king says, Daniel, are you able to... Or actually, Belteshazzar, that's the name they gave him. He says, "Are, are you able to give me the dream and its interpretation? No king, no one is able to do that. No diviner, no astrologer, no wise man can't do it. But there is a God in heaven. Daniel lowers himself again in verse 30. He says, I don't have any wisdom greater than anyone else. But God has revealed this to me for your information. Daniel humbles himself and then he exalts God again and again. In verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Verse 29 He reveals mysteries 
made known to you. Verse 37, the God of heaven has given you the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. Verse 45, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. Daniel is very quick to give the honor and the glory, the exaltation to God, which is right where it belongs. Living humbly, Daniel not only humbles himself and he not only exalts God, he also honors the king. You know, Daniel had every reason to dislike and disrespect this king. This king had severely humbled Daniel's people and Daniel's nation and Daniel's king. He had gone and subjected the king of Judah to him. He had exacted tribute. He had taken taken treasures from the temple of, of their God, Daniel's God, and taken them back to Babylon and put them in the, in the temples of pagan gods. He had taken Daniel and his three friends and, and a good number of other young Jewish men, boys, and drug them away from their families, kidnapped them basically, and taken them back to Babylon over 500 miles away as the crow flies, longer the way they get there, and they will never see, potentially, their families again. Now I ask, if you were in that situation and somebody just humiliated your country, they offended your God, they ripped you away from your family, from everything that you know and love, is it going to be easy to respect them? No. We have a hard enough time with people that we just disagree with. Political leaders we didn't vote for. Brothers and sisters, we are called as believers to give honor to whom honor is due, Paul writes to the Romans. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, he says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, honor the king. Peter's writing during the days of Nero as he's on the throne. It's not an option. We are to honor those in authority over us. If you and I are going to handle success well, the first thing we need to do is live in humility. And living in humility means we humble ourselves, we exalt God at every opportunity, and we give proper respect and honor to those in authority over us. Let's move on with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Verse 31, You saw, O king, and beheld a, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them 
could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream was of a statue. A statue that was huge in size and mighty in appearance, dazzling in brightness. Nebuchadnezzar found it frightening in appearance. Its most notable feature was that it was constructed of metal, but of different types of metal. Different types of metal were on different parts. The head of the image was of fine gold. The chest and the arms were made of silver. The midsection of the thighs were made of bronze. The legs were made of iron, though I kind of think they look more like leggings, but that's just me. The feet were partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And even though the image was frightening to Nebuchadnezzar, probably more frightening than the statue was what happened next. Nebuchadnezzar saw a stone that was cut, but not by human hands. Later when Daniel is explaining the, the um, interpretation of the dream, he says the stone is cut out of a mountain. And so this stone is cut out, but no hands cut it out. It might have been round. It might have been square. It might have been rectangular. It might We don't know. It might even have been pyramid shaped. But this stone was cut out and then it either rolls or it becomes airborne and some way it gains a lot of velocity and strikes this statue right at the feet. And then the feet are broken and then the statue itself just crumbles crumbles to the point where it becomes as dust, or as he says here, like the chaff from a, the threshing floor. And the wind blows it and it is gone like it never even existed. And then that rock, that stone suddenly grows and grows and grows and fills the entire earth. Quite a dream. Nebuchadnezzar is desperate to know what does it mean. Daniel gives the interpretation there in verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings. And by the way, not the king of kings like Jesus. We think of him as king of kings and lord of lords. This is king of kings. It's appropriate. He is king over all the kings that he's king over. Okay. <laughs> I know I'm such a deep thinker. It's, it's <laughs> you, O King, the King of Kings, to whom the God of Heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand He has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of 
potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. Some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together. And just as iron does not mix with clay, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Daniel says this is not a maybe, this is not a what if. This is not a somebody's wishful thinking. This is God saying what you have seen is what will happen. It is certain and it is sure. This statue made of various metals, the various metals and the various parts represent different kingdoms. Kingdoms that will successively follow uh, Babylon. Babylon, he says, you are the head of gold. The other metals are successive kingdoms. As you go down the statue, it's the, the one that succeeds, the one before And each metal, you will notice, gets from more precious to less precious. Gold is more precious than what follows, which is silver, which is more precious than what follows, which is bronze, that is more precious than what follows, which is iron. But each of the metals, besides for you scientific types, where it increases in uh, in specific gravities. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm not a science type, but I just kind of remember reading that. I thought, that's curious. But... What, what, it, what we do know, what we do ob- observe plainly is that they, they increase in strength. Silver is stronger than gold. Bronze is stronger than silver. Iron is stronger than, than uh, bronze. The kingdoms that follow are not named other than Babylon. Babylon, the head of gold, is named. But when we get over to Daniel chapter 8, we do find that there... Two kingdoms are named Medo-Persia, which historically is the next kingdom that follows Babylon, uh, basically 64 years after this vision. The Medes and the Persians conquer Babylon and they become the next world empire. It happens in the lifetime of Daniel, chapter 5 of the book. We will see that in a few weeks. They are followed by the next empire, which is represented by the bronze, which is the Greek empire, which is named as well in Daniel chapter 8. The fourth kingdom, the strongest of the four, is not named anywhere in the book of Daniel. The legs of iron, that fourth kingdom that crushed their enemies, seems to logically and appropriately represent the empire that replaced the empire of Greece which is the empire of Rome. All of that happens in history. But then what comes next 
what happens at the feet of this statue, I would say is no longer history, but it is prophecy of what is still future. You see, the stone that is cut without hands goes and strikes the statue's feet. That a divided kingdom, it says, represented by being mixed with iron and clay, and there are toes, and representing factions that are bound together by marriage, by alliances, and yet it is a it is a weak bond between them. And this stone strikes these feet of iron and clay, which are somehow tied to the iron, but the Roman Empire kind of disappeared for the most part off the face of the earth just a few centuries after Christ. And yet this is still in the future yet to come. Why do I know that? Because of what it says, that the stone strikes these, these feet and the, and the feet are broken and then the whole statue comes crashing down and it disappears and this statue representing the kingdoms of men is completely gone. There is nothing left and what has replaced it is the kingdom of God That stone fills the earth and grows and becomes the kingdom of God which fills the earth and lasts forever. And if you've taken a look around lately, you haven't seen those things happen yet. Right? Is not the earth still full of plenty of little kings and despots? And the kingdom of God has not filled the earth. And God's King... The Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ, is not on the throne. That hasn't happened. But Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 24 that one day He is coming back in great power and glory. He said the same thing in Luke chapter 21. We see it happen in the book of Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus comes to earth in great power and glory and you get to Revelation chapter 20 and what does Jesus do? He sets up a kingdom on earth. I say that kingdom is this kingdom. So this vision, while it deals with history happening from the time of Nebuchadnezzar tracing its way through some of the kingdoms and empires of man, that we, have, we can see in the past, there is still a portion of this that is yet future. Now, we could spend the next 10, 11 hours or so studying this and we would just still scratch the surface. And to do it, we would have to dig deeply into this passage and we'd have to go over and we'd have to look at Daniel chapter We'd have to look at Daniel chapter 8. We'd have to look at some more of Daniel. We'd have to go and look at Matthew chapter 24. We'd have to go and look at Luke chapter 21. We would have to go and dig through a whole bunch of the book of Revelation. And we can't do that this morning. So, study on your own. I'm sure we'll have classes on Daniel anytime soon, sometime soon. There's actually probably some going on right now. I think I can name one home group. What I'd like to do in the next few minutes that we do have is get back to our looking at the main points. And to do that, we have to ask the question, why is this here? Why did God give this vision of this statue to Nebuchadnezzar? 
What's the message? We actually talked about it last week as we noted that this whole little incident with this, with this vision that it changes from being written in Hebrew to being written in Aramaic. The message is here for Nebuchadnezzar, for all those who follow him, those other kingdoms, those other empires, for all the folks in Babylon. There's a message from them, from the God of heaven, the God of the Jews, whom Nebuchadnezzar may be tempted in all of his success <laughs> to look and say that I have succeeded and I have beaten the God of the Hebrews, captured his little treasures and put them in the house of my God. The message here is very clear to Nebuchadnezzar and any who will listen. There is a sovereign God in heaven. No matter what nation is dominant, no matter what man sits as king on some throne, God is in charge. God knows the future and can say what kingdoms are coming and what will happen in the future because He is the one who controls and directs and arranges and superintends the future. He is the sovereign Lord and sovereign King. He's the God of heaven. And as is well clear in here, He's the God of the Jews. Secondly, what is clear from this vision, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has is that God will destroy every kingdom of man. Man with all of his pomp, man with all of his glory, man with all of his great achievements will ultimately fail, will fall, and will disappear. All of his glory will disappear into dust that blows away. And God will establish His kingdom forever. It's in that reality that I think we find a second principle for handling success successfully. And that is this. If we're going to handle success successfully, we need to not only live humbly, but we need to live for God's kingdom. Every... There's a temptation for you and me to get all goo-goo-eyed over all the stuff of earth. For us to be enamored with the great achievements of man. For us to walk through the great cities, whether it's Babylon or New York City. For us to look at the architecture of magnificent stuff. For us to look at uh, you know, all of the bling <laughs> of humanity and we, we, we get impressed with it. Whether it's money or buildings or art or power or prestige. And God says it's all coming down. The problem with success is that it tends to come along with money. It tends to come along with some accolades, with some recognition. It tends to come along with this stuff and that stuff tends to catch our attention. And with just a little bit of success, we very easily start moving to build our own little kingdoms. We get proud of our little successes. We start building a little more and stop, start looking back as Nebuchadnezzar will do in a couple of chapters and say, isn't this the great Babylon that I have built? And there's a tendency for us to walk into Babylon and see all this stuff and go, whoa, 
And then we get our eye on the buildings and the stuff of man. And the message here is don't get, don't get caught up in that stuff. Because when we do, we start to build our own little kingdoms here and we make our treasure here. And if that's what we're living for, we're wasting our time. Jesus put it this way, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust corrupt or destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Don't build your hopes in the kingdoms of man. Whether it's Babylon or the United States or just your own little kingdom on your own little block in your own little house. Build your hopes in the kingdom of God. The real focus of this vision is not the statue, it's the rock. See, we tend to look at this vision and we tend to focus on the statue, but that's not the focus. The focus is the rock. Because by the end of the vision, the statue has completely disappeared. Not even a speck of dust left. What's left is the rock. It filled the earth. It became a kingdom that does not end. The rock that destroys the kingdoms of men is Jesus, the promised Messiah, who is the King that becomes the kingdom. He's also called in Scripture the rock of our salvation. Our only hope is to trust in Him, the rock of salvation, or we will be crushed by Him, who is the judge of all mankind. Our only hope is to trust in Him and to build our lives upon Him. As John put it in his little letter, 1 John 2, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In this little world we live in, it is so easy for us to put our hopes in the wrong kingdom. So if we're going to handle success successfully, We not only need to live humbly, we need to realize we need to live for God's kingdom. Not ever get carried away and enamored and so caught up and so proud and so focused on the stuff around us. And it's so easy to do. Let's finish the story. Verse 46, The king Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And made him chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. What an incredible scene this is. The most powerful man on earth falls prostrate, falls on his face before this Jewish teenager and commands that he be honored and that he incense be be placed before him and and. He gives honor to the God of heaven because Daniel has made it so clear. It's not me. It's all God. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, 
your God truly is God of God and, and Lord of Lords. Then Daniel is exalted to a high place in the government. He doesn't forget his friends. He shares the credits and rewards with his friends Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. They are given places of honor and authority as well. This is God at work watching over His people. And I don't just mean Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. You see, what is unknown really to, or unthought of, I'm sure, by anyone else at this time, is that God is thinking about His people. Over the next 17 years, basically the entire population of Judah all the Israelites, the Jews, are going to be rounded up and hauled off to Babylon. What God is doing now is He's gone before them with these young men, men who have been committed to being faithful to God, and God has taken them and put them in the highest positions of authority in Babylon so that when His people get there, God already has some people in place who will faithfully watch over and care for His people Israel. Even though Israel is going to Babylon because they're under God's judgment for disobedience. And I find that so heartening. And God is gracious even to His wayward people. And He's been at work here behind the scenes. I don't know if Daniel yet knows why he's there and that why he has been raised to this place. Maybe and probably as he's been reading in his Bible and he reads the story of Joseph and he sees what God did with Joseph, a very similar thing, sending him ahead under bad circumstances to place him there in a place for good purposes. And maybe he sees that unfolding before him. But the third principle that I see in Daniel and his friends helping us handle success successfully is this, is that they chose to live as God's servants wherever God put them. You and I often find ourselves in places and we have no idea why we are here in this situation. But you know, God does. And He has put you where you are and me where I am and in the places we are for a purpose. And what He wants for you and me to do while we are there is to serve Him. Daniel and his friends from everything that we can read on the pages here, is they served in their positions well. They served with excellence. They were good advisors to the king. They were diligent and faithful in their duties. They didn't do things half-heartedly. They did things well. And may I say, brothers and sisters, that it's a good thing when God gives you or me opportunities to serve in places. Opportunities perhaps to serve in government. Opportunities perhaps to serve on a school board. Opportunities to serve on your homeowners association. Opportunities to have a position in your company or wherever in your school. God puts you in places out there in the world, as it were, in Babylon in the communities where you have places, where you have responsibilities and even authority. And God puts you there for a purpose, 
for you to live and to serve with excellence where you can have input into that place to give advice to when it's, when it's asked for or needed. And you can give advice, not just advice, but advice from a goodly and a godly perspective where you have opportunities to help the, our community or wherever to succeed in their endeavors. God has put you there for that purpose. And maybe for some unknown purpose that you don't know, but He has you there perhaps for something coming along the road later. As later uh, we will see in the, you see in the story of Esther where her uncle says, perhaps God brought you into the, king, into the kingdom for such a time as this. But God has us in various places in a pagan world for more than just being there to give good advice, for more than just being there to serve and do good to our neighbor. Above all, we are here to be good witnesses. We have the privilege and the responsibility to be good witnesses as those living in Babylon, in the foreign land, in the pagan place. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He says in 1 Corinthians 4 that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. And moreover, it is required that stewards be found faithful. You and I are stewards of the greatest treasure that there is. The greatest treasure there is is the knowledge of the Creator God, who He is, what He's like, how we can come into right relationship with Him. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you, you have that knowledge, you have that understanding, and God has placed that stewardship into your hands. For what purpose? Not so that we can just go live as secret service Christians. <laughs> Hope nobody ever finds out. We're there so we can be witnesses of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. God has put a lot of opportunities at a lot of our places. We often aren't taking advantage of those opportunities because we stopped living as servants and we started living as celebrities basking in the glow of our little successes. And we become enamored with our little kingdoms rather than God's kingdom because we've lost sight of who God is and who we really are. We need to live humbly, live for His kingdom, and then live as His servant. Father, we need to hear this today. Because this is something we all struggle with. Whether from a human standpoint our successes are great or, or small, we all struggle with this. We tend to lose sight of who we are. Instead of being humble, we start getting proud. We start getting self-centered and self-focused and we focus on our little kingdoms and advancing our projects. and And then we... we end up serving ourselves instead of serving You. Lord, I pray that You would help us to be servants of Jesus. 
so focused on building His kingdom that what happens to us becomes really of little concern. And it is only at that time that we truly are, will be used greatly by You. So Father, make us Make us to be humble folks that we might live for You as Your servants. In Jesus' name, Amen.